3: Meisner, empathy, and virtual sets poised and ready to go. These topics and much, much more on today's episode. I'm your host, Sean Chandler, and you're listening to your program as your ticket, a discussion of smaller theater works and the people and organizations that make it happen. Acting teacher Terry Knickerbocker of his own Terry Knickerbocker Studio is my guest on today's show. Mr. Knickerbocker teaches the Meisner technique and is part of a direct lineage of Sanford Meisner, having spent over 30 years training and teaching with William Esper, one of Meisner's most respected proteges. Terry has coached such well known actors as Sasha Baron Cohen, Sam Rockwell, Michelle Williams, Emmy Rossum, Josh Charles, Abby Cornish, Boyd Holbrook, John Leguizamo, Jonathan Majors, Gretchen Mall, Brian Michael Smith, and Yule Vasquez, among others. I am so fortunate to have him on our Act Two Places series, which gives theater folks an opportunity to discuss the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on them and their organizations and their plans for reemergence. Keep in mind that our interviews are recorded at different times to optimize schedules, just in case the audio sounds different. I'm thrilled to have Terry on the show, so let's bring him on. Hi, Terry, and welcome to your program, this Is Your Ticket? Hi. Hi, Sean. Thanks for having me. Uh, my pleasure it's so nice that I have a very very prestigious acting teacher on on the show and in particular uh, with the act two places uh, series it's it's uh, it's going to be so nice to get your perspective on everything because you're you're probably seeing it all all of it you see the before the after the the during of, of the of building the talent and um And I'm just really, really thrilled that uh, we can have that uh,
0: look inside. Well, thank you. I I hope I can add some value to your program and to your listeners. I don't think I'm seeing everything, but I'm seeing some stuff. Yes, it's true. (laughs) And I think it's a miracle that people are training right now, actually. Really? Yeah. Well, you know, there was a lot of, I may be jumping the gun in terms of questions you have, but there was so much fear and doubt and worry uh, this is an embodied art form, and the training always has happened in person. Um, and so to be able to even imagine that you could have a class where each person is their own Zoom box, and training acting in their living room, in their parents' house, with and training movement and training voice with the same benefits is is almost unimaginable and was unimaginable for me at first. So but you know what are you gonna do watch Netflix all for a year? You no know, so So it's great that students are doing it and it's great that um, other teachers and I have figured out how to do it yeah
3: yeah, I, I think that we're we're all just trying to understand how, first we were under, trying to understand how we were going to even get through, the very, very first day, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. Um, and then it was, how do I, how do I start this? How do I start this reemergence? And then it, a lot of it is, and, and this is what I'm hearing from a lot of the guests on this series, is giving yourself permission to sort of behave or, or risk or uh, try things outside of, of the structure of theater. And, um, in, in for also from what I'm hearing is as a result of that, a lot of people now that we're in the learning phase of this before we hopefully, whenever that mythic day comes that, you know, we're all free to go back in the theater. Um, a, a lot of people are enjoying what they've learned and taking pieces of that to, um, to help their programs. And I think a lot of that was a lot of that for you just, you know, telling yourself it's okay to do something like that?
0: You know, um, I mean, honestly, I know you're going to ask me about those first days, but I was terrified, really. Mm-hmm. And and so were so many people. And I just did like, and I was mad. I didn't think you could do this. And, and so I honestly thought I was going to have to like sell my house and, you know, move somewhere and work at a gas station. Um, and, it's taken. It took a little while to figure out that this could be done and could be done in quality because, you know, the tagline of my studio is training the passionate actor committed to excellence. And that idea of excellence is, you know, because there are a lot of places you can train to be an actor in New York from, like, secretaries with a bucket list doing intro to acting and they do it for a month and then they don't do it anymore to schools like mine which are really trying to present a legitimate alternative to a top MFA program like yeah. Yale or Juilliard at NYU. So that's my niche. It's not just come take some acting classes. It's like boot camp, Navy SEALs, hardcore for people who are really clear, at least when they're in school, that this is what they want to do. This is what they want to do for the rest of their life. And so I really had to discover whether or not we could offer online something that had the same quality as we have in person. The format would be different. There's some adjustments, specifically in the Meisner work, which we can talk about. But I didn't want to just babysit my students and take their money. That would be completely unethical and and leave a very bad taste in everybody's mouth. So part of it was discovering, like, will this work? And so actually, just when we finally did come back, um, I said to my students, we're going to try this for a week. And if it doesn't feel right, we'll put a pause in it thinking, Oh, that might be a month. Well, here it is 13, 14 months later and we've been going nonstop. So it does work, but it took a little bit of discovering and being willing to not do it.
3: Yeah. Uh, One of the things that I've been surprised the most uh, about these interviews is, are all the success stories that are coming out of this. And, um, For such a really, really sucky time and being in the business that is really probably going to be one of the very last, if not the last to come back because of the intimacy involved, um, I think people just... Uh, uh, took off the blinders and they had to get creative and inventive. And some people have come up with some really ingenious ideas, uh, to, to handle this. Now I'm not saying we turn everything into film and TV. That just makes all, a bunch of theaters turn into production houses. Um, but a lot of people are, are really finding new ways. And, uh, I think that's, I, I personally think that's cool. Maybe I'm just, um, you know, just trying to be uh, as positive and be a Pollyanna about everything. Otherwise, I'll just I don't know floods of tears. <laughs> no, and then I, I really will. I'm sorry. Please, please go ahead. I think
0: it's I think it's thrilling. No, I'm sorry to interrupt. Um, okay. I don't think it's Pollyanna at all. I think we're artists, and therefore, and we're creators, and so you work with you know necessity is the mother of invention. Um, I taught at NYU for. Um, many years, decades, and and one of the things that in NYU film school, I taught in the drama school, but um, students' economic situations often created um, different strata of possibilities. Like if you came from a wealthy family and you're doing a thesis project for film, you might have a lot more money for your film than someone from a lower class economic background. And so um, obviously that's unfair. And one of the things that my department did for um, students, like senior projects, was just say, you have a $50 budget. You want to do a show with 10 people and roller skates and whatever? That's great, but you have to make it work with 50 bucks." And once you have that kind of set of handcuffs, it starts to really create possibilities. Um, You know, it'd be like writing a concerto and just using three notes. That now starts to really create ideas if you're truly a creative person which luckily we are.
3: I totally agree with you I've said that many many times that um, it, you you the big genius ideas really come when like you said when your your hands are tied when you when when you have to stop relying on money and you have to start you know relying on your mind and your creativity uh, that's when you see moments that are like, Whoa! Where did that come from? And I can usually recognize them when I when I'm seeing theater where it's like that's yeah. that's because so and so did not have a lot of money for a set, and that's awesome yeah, yeah, that yeah. they did that. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. it's really cool. Um, well, let's start by um, having you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your career as a prestigious acting teacher.
0: Thanks, um, thanks, Sean. Well, of course, I started out as a as, a, as an actor and and was doing that starting from age four, um, never thinking I was going to be an actor, but started acting back then and high school acting and grade school acting and uh, went to BU, Boston university to study French. Um, And uh, I guess thinking I'd become like a diplomat or something like that. (laughs) Like I, I had a good ear for a French accent and, um, and back then Schools taught French. They don't teach a lot of French these days. It's not so practical. And, and then I never went to class. Like, I didn't really want to be there. But I saw in my first couple weeks there an audition notice. Um, Gilbert and Sullivan is a huge subgenre uh, in Boston for some reason. Like, you know, HMS Pinafore, Pirates of Penzance, sure, all, all those shows. And the Boston University Savoyards were putting on an Offenbach operetta, Totally obscure that nobody's heard of, called the Grand Duchess of Gerolstein, and I—he's the guy who wrote an opera called Tales of Hoffman for your opera freaks and um, French opera. And so I auditioned and got in, was in the chorus and played a soldier, and like this was great. And then they did some more Gilbert and Sullivan, and I got some parts, and I started doing a lot of leads in Gilbert and Sullivan, which was at Harvard, at BU. Um, at MIT, and anybody could be in them. You didn't have to go to those schools. It was like a club. And then Mm -hmm. started to do some straight plays at Harvard at what is now um, uh, ART, or was ART, right? Back then, they didn't have an acting program. And what I realized very quickly was I had no idea what I was doing. And that's what a lot of actors start out with. Like they, you know, you'd never start the violin just winging it. You'd have classes before you'd give a performance. But so many actors especially kid actors and even high school actors um start out just because we have an innate understanding of what it is to be human and we know how to mimic people and we love stories because they're so part of culture and so you can get a little bit you can go far with that but not you know ultimately the best actors are trained actors and so then i went holy cow i better get some training and audition for nyu got in luckily because it's the only place I applied to, and um, that was it. I was an actor. And then one day I sort of fell into directing, because when I was acting, I really loved, I had ideas about what everyone else should do. Um, I wanted to tell the director how to put costumes on people and where actors should stand and how they should say their lines, which any actor will tell you is like a complete no-no. Actors don't tell each other what to do. So when I got this opportunity to direct at American Place Theater, um, just by accident, but very fortuitously, that was great. And I went, okay, I'm home, now I'm a director. And then I quickly learned, uh, I won an award, I won the Drama League's uh, Directing Award for Emerging Young Directors, and it's like, okay, that's my career now, directing theater. Um, And then very quickly I learned that theater directors really don't make a living. Unless you're Joe Montello or Julie Taymor and you've got Lion King or Wicked on Broadway and are getting that weekly residual, it's very hard to make a living just as a straight play theater director doing off-Broadway, off-off-Broadway regional work. It's pretty tough. So I went, how do you make money? I mean, I want to direct. And that's where teaching ultimately came in. There are three ways that directors back then made money besides directing. One was to be on staff at a theater, like literary manager, artistic director, or associate artistic director. That would have been at, like, the public theater, or Playwrights Horizons, or Manhattan Theater Club, um, Circle Rep, which was around back then. But none of those places need anybody. The second interesting way, apparently, was to direct soap operas, and there are a bunch of soap operas shooting in New York at the time. And so he said, okay, that's weird, but I'll try it. And I got an in. I had a friend who, David Petrarca, who's a wonderful director, um, had an in at, at Guiding Light. And he said, great, you go shadow, and that's how you get started. And I did it for a day, and it was like, ugh. I, I'm getting body aches just thinking about it. Not that there's anything wrong with soap operas. There's some good acting that happens there sometimes, and they work really hard, but it just wasn't for me. And so the third way was to teach. And after I'd graduated from NYU, I still didn't know what I was doing as an actor, totally, even though I had a great experience, and came upon a masterful teacher who became my mentor, William Esper, who passed on a few years ago. But he had trained with Sandy Meisner, he started his studio in 1965, and he was one of New York's best-kept secrets. Because at the time, the big teachers were Stella Adler, who was still alive, Lee Strasberg, Uta Hagen, right, and Sandy Meisner. But Bill Esper was as good as any of those, and I was fortunate enough to be in his class. And so when I discovered that, oh, to to support my directing, I should I need to teach, I went to Bill and I said, Bill, I really wanna I wanna teach and I I you know, anybody can teach, you know, anybody can say they're a teacher. You don't need a license to teach. But I knew that what I wanted to teach was the Meisner work, which Bill had shared with me so beautifully. And I didn't dare teach it unless I knew how to teach it. And I wanted to be around him. And so he said, well, I don't need any teachers. I'm sorry. I I just don't, I have, I don't have enough students to take on another teacher. And I said, how about if I just stick around and sit in the back of your class and watch you teach until you ask me to leave? And that began a 30-year relationship as an apprentice teacher and then a teacher with him uh, until I left in 2015 to start my studio. Now, I was still doing the teaching to support directing. I was doing a lot of directing at the time. Um, But I started to fall in love with teaching and, and really realize it as really my life's work that Something about imparting this incredible technique that Mr. Meisner created and and that Bill shared with me that works so well and really helping actors to realize their potential was what turned me on the most. Um, And I didn't miss directing because when I got into the scene work of Second Year, there's a lot of directing in that. Like it's there's some interpretation on my part of how do I see Streetcar Named Desire?
1: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: Um, But ultimately, that's how it's that's how it started, and that's where it is right now. And I love it. Excellent.
3: Um, Can you please explain the um, Sanford Meisner technique of acting to our audience? Um, Talk
0: about the similarities, maybe the differences to other techniques. Yeah. I'll do my best. Um, uh, I would say, first of all, that pretty much, I think many of your listeners would understand that most really good acting training is all derived from this Russian fellow, Stanislavski, um, who back in the 30s, you know, American acting up to then was very much like melodrama, you must pay the rent. I won't pay the rent. Like sort of bad silent film acting, right? <laughs> and then meanwhile, this guy Stanislavsky was in Russia working with Anton Chekhov and rehearsed uh, The Seagull for two years. That was a two-year rehearsal period, which given today's three weeks and then previews schedule of off-Broadway and even, you know, it was just unthinkable. What I no like? yeah. Wow. yeah. Two years, but that's kind of amazing. And then brought... That work to New York and the members of the group theater, which was Harold Klerman, Lee Strasberg, Sanford Meisner, Stella Adler, um, Cheryl Crawford, uh, Clifford Odets, the playwright. You know, this was kind of this very liberal, passionate group of theater makers went and saw Stanislavsky in the Moscow Art Theater and got their minds blown and said, oh, well, teach us about your training. You know, the work was just so organic, so natural. They'd never seen anything that was so true to life. American acting like that didn't exist. So, first of all, no one cares what kind of training you've had. No audience member says to themselves, you know what, sweetheart? I feel like some Strasburg acting tonight, don't you? No, no, no. I'd, You know, it's not like Chinese food versus Italian food. It's just all all good training should help an actor to be able to say, you give me a script and I know what to do to, to turn it into behavior that's authentic and meaningful and honors the writer, but also honors me as an artist and my imagination. So that it feels like the part was made for me and it feels true to life, right? It feels like I'm watching real life unfold in whatever format. It could be a farce, you know, it could be Michael Frayn, it could be Tennessee Williams, it could be a new play, it doesn't really matter. It could be a film, a TV show. Good acting is good acting, and I think we can all recognize it. Um, but Meisner, um, so when I went to NYU, I, I studied a hodgepodge of techniques, all derived from Stanislavski, which is basically about just creating truthful behavior. That's kind of what it boils down to. Now, Strasbourg um, is very associated with something we would call the method Right. So that's Al Pacino, a bunch of other people, great work, obviously. That's early Stanislavski, because Stanislavski developed his method over years. And at the beginning, he was doing something. I heard you speaking to, um, I think your most recent podcast was a, a wonderful Korean actor. And he was talking about understudying this fellow and having to create a stabbing. And you talked about sense memory. Um, and sense memory comes from Stanislavski and this idea of something else called affective memory, which is where you use your history and you're, you know, like if something terrible happened to you when you were younger, oh, that could be a source of authentic emotion. And you would kind of get back in touch with that through the senses and through, re- through memory. And I need tears. I need anger. I need whatever that is. That's a good, authentic Personal source for me, so that's what Stanislavski was doing at first. That's what they all did in the group theater, and Strasberg uh, the most. A couple of years later, Stella Adler went to Paris to visit with Stanislavski. He happened to be there, she said, "I'll come. Let's let's hang out and see what's going on." She said, "Oh, we're doing the we're doing all that stents memory stuff and effective memory." And, and Stanislavski said, "I don't do that anymore." What? Nah. I'm kind of into the imagination now, right? And I find that much more expansive, right? You don't have to have experienced anything. If you can imagine it, it's just as potent. Um, And so he'd moved on and she came back and reported to everyone. And Strasburg said, well, too bad. I'm still going to do this. And Stella went in the direction. So a fork in the road in American training happened in that moment. And Stella Adler went more towards using the imagination, um, because, you know, let's say you had a really perfect childhood. I mean, that's kind of hard to imagine, but let's say you were very happy and had great parents. Where are you going to get your trauma? Are you going to say you can only play happy parts, right? How are you going to play someone who had an abusive childhood if it's not in your actual experience? And this idea of the imagination is saying, well, if you can dream it with empathy, then you can get connected to it just as well. Because after all, that's what acting is. It's like imagination. So Meisner very much went along that road of, let's come up with the work from the imagination. But the very important contribution that he made, um, which is why a lot of people consider his work to be foundational. Um, You know, when I went to NYU, the very first thing I did in acting class was Streak Our Name Desire. Now, that's how a lot of acting techniques start. They start with scene study, right? First day of class, let's do a scene. And that would be like going to ballet and starting with Swan Lake or starting the, you know, the piano with Beethoven. That's just not how performing arts are done. Right. Performing arts are done with first position, second position, plie, scales, arpeggios. Mm-hmm. Now, no one goes to Carnegie Hall to hear scales, but if you do a lot of scales, you become very musical. Meisner's background was as a pianist before he became a man of the theater. He went to a, a, a conservatory called the Damrosch Conservatory and studied piano. And so some kind of synthesis happened in his mind with how can I apply the principles of piano study to acting training. And he said, "Well, we need the equivalent of scales and arpeggios and exercises." And so we came up with this thing that he that starts the Meisner training starts, and it's very sequential. So it's each class builds on the class be, before it. Until at the end of the first year, you've got a lot of balls in the air, but you kind of got there step by step, just as you would if you were learning a musical instrument or tap dancing. Um, starts with this thing called the repetition exercise, right? So if I were uh, to look at you right now and you were my partner, uh, I'd say, um, looks like you're wearing a hoodie. And then you'd repeat back to me, looks like I'm wearing a hoodie. And I'd repeat back to you, yes, it looks like you're wearing a hoodie. And you'd repeat that back to me. Now, that's not Chekhov. That's not Tennessee Williams. But it's the seed Of Chekhov, because it already has within it some really important things for acting, specifically really listening. Like, and where's my attention? My attention's on you. That's very useful for acting because actors get very self conscious, and a lot of bad acting has as its source people worried about themselves. What am I going to do with my hands? What do I look like? So, if I put my attention on you, I start to become very free. Right, And out of that little tiny seed of listening and truthfully responding and starting to work authentically from moment to moment, he started to add elements to the technique until by the end of the first year, you're able to improvise and live out any imaginary circumstance that could happen to you, right? as you. Now, it's not character work, because in his mind character work was using all the parts of yourself that you discovered in the first year and painting portraits of other people using those ingredients. So there's always some connection to you. Robert Duvall, who studied with Meisner, said that character acting is you bent, just a little bit different version of you. Like if you're playing Laura in The Glass Menagerie, well, we know from Tennessee Williams' script certain facts about her. We know that she's insecure, that she has low self-esteem, that she's yearning for connection, that she has a very domineering mother in Amanda, that she lives in her fantasies, which is what she calls her glass menagerie, and there's something poetic about her. We know that she also has a hard time following through with things. Everything she starts, she gives up. So if you're a very successful actress, meaning not in your career, but you You keep your appointments, you always follow through, you're very brash, right? Well, you can't make Laura that, because that's not Tennessee Williams' story. So you have to kind of, like a remixing board, bring down the part of you that's effective and confident, and start to raise the part of you that could understand low self-esteem. And so that kind of adjustment and having accessibility to all your parts, and especially through empathy, right? Because you really need to empathize with a character rather than judge it, right? If you're going to play, let's just say Donald Trump, which is a fascinating character, I would say, um, you can't judge him as being arrogant or narcissistic or anything like that. You might understand that about him, but then you're going to be sort of distancing yourself. You have to say, what happened to this guy? What happened with him and Fred and Mary Trump, as parents growing up in Queens, that led him to be the kind of guy who never says, I'm sorry, who's so interested, who's so susceptible to flattery and also susceptible to attack, right? Where does that all come from? Because I think it comes from a great deal of insecurity. Why did he keep tra- trading in girlfriends to get younger and younger girlfriends and wives, so that he could feel eternally youthful and stuff like that. And through that kind of empathy and understanding, you can start to build a character. So those are some of the things that that Meisner does. And, um, you know, his basic premise is that acting is doing, right? Acting is not feeling, acting, doing. That's why we say to act, it's an action. And so the question is always, what am I doing? And... What does everything mean and who is my character and what are my relationships and what are the given circumstances? And if I can start to understand some of those through the process of the training, you can start to create that behavior reliably. You know, my work when I got out of NYU was hit or miss. And a lot of actors report this, like some parts, just like it happens. And then the next part, it's like, I don't know what I'm doing. And because of that scene study model. Because a scene study model teaches you how to do that scene, but it doesn't teach you how to do a scene from a play that you might write, Sean, right? Because that play hasn't been written yet. Whereas if we get this foundational approach that teaches you how to approach any script and how to get access to the behavior that lives inside you, um, then you've got a toolkit for life, and you can take it anywhere. You can take it on stage, you can take it to Hollywood, you can take it anywhere. It's really amazingly practical and totally places the actor as an artist which is really special
3: mm. um i really like watching uh meisner actors uh, quite I, I mean i just I, I i feel like when they're acting they're so immediate they're so in the moment and and there is the the connection uh with their scene partner or partners if it's a big group scene Um, and it feels like they're always just connecting with, with like this particular prop or this particular person, or when they walk in, they're connecting with the, with the room and the effect that it has on me is I see a thinking, feeling, human being because of that focus. And it, I think to me takes, um, uh, all of that unwanted artifice out and, and I just, I am seeing a real person up on stage or, or in a film. I mean, I, it just, it just feels like they're, it feels like the scene breathes and it feels like it's alive. Yeah. I mean, and I'm, I, I can usually tell because there's, um, I think that the best actors, when they're up on, on stage or on screen, there's like an internal vibration happening with them. Like they're just up yes. there and they're awake and they're, they're paying attention. Even if they're, they're drunk or they're passing or, or they're playing drunk or paying, playing, passing out or sick or something like that. Your mind and your eye just directly gravitates to them. And it's because they are just so there. Yes. Yes. Oh, I and, love uh, hearing that. Well, it's, it's true. And I know that, um, It's a lot of that is, I think, discipline. It takes, it takes probably a a long time to look that natural and a a lot of training as well. It's funny. Um, my husband David and I went to, um, London before the, no, actually this was the trip before the trip, before the shutdown. (laughs) Sorry. And, um, we saw the, um, gender flip version of company. And uh are are you familiar with, with this? It's like they've they've turned Bobby into a female character. And it's it's yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. In my opinion, it's incredible. It's, wow. it really is. And but afterwards uh we they had a question and an answer. And we, we totally lucked out because we had Patty Lapone up there as part of the panel. Um and then uh I think it's a uh, Marianne Elliott is the director, and uh um I forget the the very, very talented lady who played who played Bobby. But somebody asked a question. They're like, how do you get up there and take that journey every single night and then completely rewind and then take it again the next night? And Patty LuPone, who I love, but I kind of like love her over there because I'm afraid of her, <laughs> leans down <laughs> right into the audience, and she goes, training. That's all she said. And, of course, the rest of us are like, oh, my God. Yeah. But it's true. I mean, you, it, t- I think that to have that naturalness and that fluidity, you really do have to train uh, in, in that sort of emotional, accessing your emotions. And um, because in addition to all of that, you have to do the basics of acting, which are remembering your lines and your costumes and, and your, um, your blocking and things like that. And I've taken an acting class here and there mostly for empathy as a writer that's that to me was overwhelming enough yeah, yeah, yeah so it's it feels like it feels like all of that stuff has to be like like second nature is there a focus on making uh just the basics of your experience acting in front of the camera or on on the stage second nature so that you can really access that natural place that comes with I uh, uh, like, but
0: i think it's like anything it's practice that you know you look at athletes and like a baseball player a second baseman they practice so many ground balls so that it it's not it's not even thought you know it just happens it's in their muscle memory um, and so I think the more you practice with a good teacher uh, you you start to cultivate habits of performance that you just can't help but you know that thing you were talking about an actor walking in the room and being in touch with other people and sensing the space and interacting with props that's when you've done it so many times um that's just natural Mm -hmm. you know and the best actors are fascinated with that and also they have some other you know there's a talent factor here that's kind of what you're born with Like a a sort of an affinity for telling stories, an affinity for transformation, and a love of that. You know, like you can't be an actor if you don't love conflict, which means you have to understand that the imaginary world is safe. Like if you go, oh wait, someone's yelling at me, I got to shut down, you can't be an actor. Because maybe in life that's not, you know, I don't walk around New York going, please somebody pick a fight with me. But boy, would that be a great thing to happen in a in a play or in a movie? Please pick a fight with me. Let's have it. Let's mix it up because that's that's the kind of richness that I want to act. So you have to kind of love action if you're an actor.
3: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think I, I recall seeing uh, Meryl Streep interviewed, and uh, they asked all of these things that you you do. You do these. You play these characters that are constantly in trouble and constantly. Uh, at odds with everyone and the situation and, and, and that you're in, and um, she said, are, are, you, "Are you like that?" The the interview, "Are you like that, Meryl?" She said, um, "No, you don't. In life, you don't want any of that. <laughs> but of course, in drama, you do need the conflict. As a writer, right. I need conflict myself. Yes. Um, so it's it's funny that you say that. That flashed me back to yeah, one of my favorite moments of Meryl Streep that.
0: And sometimes students screw that up. Like they don't make a decision. You know, one of the things that the work encourages, because there's so much improvisation before we get working on scripts, is freedom. And like whatever's going on, you say it in the exercise. If you say that shirt looks ugly, you don't worry about social norms or something like that, and um, because it's safe, and you can be really truthful, and it's a, an exercise in subtext, but. I had a student years ago who was very restricted, very proper. Uh, grew up on the upper East side and had a very kind of patrician household, and went to fancy uh, private schools. But really wanted to be an actress, and you know I think both her parents were very successful uh, attorneys, and so there was a lot of unlearning, which is a lot of what acting training is. You learn these tools, but you also have to unlearn a lot of conditioning and defenses to get into a more primitive. Uh, responsive kind of place. And so she came, she was very stuck in the work, um, very appropriate. And then one day she came into class and said, you're you're going to be so proud of me. And I said, what, what happened, Victoria? And she said, I, I had a fight with my boyfriend over the weekend and I kicked him. And I went, I am not proud of you for that. Not at all. (laughs) You don't want to take this work and, you know, mix it up with people in the deli and kick people in your life. You can know how you feel about it, but you have to be very, you know, discerning about what you actually live out and really keep that kind of stuff in the acting class and on stage. Wow. You know. That's, that's a, that's an odd day. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. <laughs> in yeah. class.
0: <laughs> well, weird things happen in acting classes, you know. Absolutely. Um,
3: okay. Now, before I, ask you my questions about covid and the coronavirus i have yeah. one follow-up question from something that you mentioned before and that follow-up question is can you still speak french
0: oh un petit peu un petit peu um but not too much <laughs> you know if i went to paris which i haven't been to in a long time um i pick it up a, a bit i think yeah i can read it better than i can speak it um more Spanish because Spanish is like all over New York and I, I like to go to Mexico and Dominican Republic and stuff like that um, but I think it helps because there's a there's a character you know I love French movies and um, it's fun you know it's just it's fun it, it it helps I think that was the precursor of the transformational ideas like just to be a different person you know who speaks a little bit different and you know, I found Parisians to be very snobby, not, you know, that's a kind of a stereotype. But um, when it comes to, like, Americans, that there's some judgment of us as being a little less classy and a little less sophisticated um, than they are. And, and so I, 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 that's interesting to me.
3: I love the French language. Um, yes. I, I think when women speak it, it sounds beautiful. And yes. when men speak <laughs> it, it sounds dirty oh that's funny it just for some reason that's sort of how it's hits my ear with, uh, David and I have gone to France many mm. times, and i you know I get by with the same twenty phrases or so and and the more we go, the easier it gets for me um and it, it's funny because he's an actor I, I love that you said that because he's an actor and he doesn't speak a lot of French like I'll learn mm. all of the phrases you know da do yeah. and take me here, whatever, but when he speaks his when he speaks his, you know, five or ten phrases that he knows, boy, the Frenchman really comes out. That's and cool. He, he did play uh, Dr. Caius in The Merry Wives of Windsor,
0: who mm. speaks French. And so he starts that, and falls back into that. Huh? They're doing Pardon? that in Shakespeare in the Park this year. Are they? Yes, that's, oh, that's, that's kind of the comeback of theater. They're only going to do one show, not two, but that's the show they're doing.
3: You know, I should go. I'm not a huge fan of Shakespeare, and I've never been to uh, a show at Shakespeare in the Park.
0: Oh, you got to go. I know. I saw Meryl Streep there. I saw her. Uh, oh, goodness. I thought I'd do the seagull. Um, yeah.
3: You know, I'm going to do it. Yeah. I'm going to do it. I'm going to follow up with you, Terry. And, okay. and just, you know, I'm just. Sometimes when I'm. Watching Shakespeare, I get um, I feel like there's a schism between what they're saying and, or a chasm, if you will, of what they're saying and how I'm hearing it. Um, I feel like every line I sort of have to translate from from the dialogue into uh, how I'm hearing it in a modern way.
0: I don't think that's you. I think that's bad Shakespearean acting. Right when you watch. Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, Patrick Stewart, Mark Rylance, um, speak Shakespeare, perform it. I mean, look at Romeo and Juliet. What light through yonder window breaks? It is the East and Juliet is the sun. If you really understand what you're saying as an actor instead of trying to speak verse, because that's the iambic pentameter. Look what mm-hmm. light through yonder window breaks. It is the east, and Juliet is the sun. Arise, you know, I mean, like, then you're going to get lost. But if you turn it into human communication and you have a masterful person doing it, it feels contemporary, which is a miracle.
3: Um... First of all, I apologize for the car alarm going off. <laughs> I, as I was saying, I live on 10th and 52nd in Manhattan. Right. So that's, that's like background music for me. Um, yeah, it's uh, typically when an actor is sort of modernizing it and breaking down the dialogue a little bit and they're not just, you know, reciting what sounds like poetry. Uh, they're actually saying what they mean and they're direct. That's when I get it. And I um, interviewed an uh, uh, actor named Carly Street. She's very, very mm. popular in Canada, and she mm. does a lot of understudy work here in New York. And I asked her about that, and I said, why Why is it, Why is? am I not connecting because you do so much Shakespeare? She says, because it's all, there's too there's too many flowers. There's too much pink poetry going on. She said, you get out there, and you say it, and you're direct about it, and um, because... Chances are that if a person of that time um, in, in Shakespeare's time, if they were delivering that line like that, people would probably be, be looking at them like, what? What are you doing? Why are you talking like that? Rather than the direct manner with the intention behind it.
0: Absolutely. Shakespearean acting at the Globe Theater was like a sporting event. People were wandering around. Men were playing all the women's parts. There were orange sellers. It was like being at a, a Yankee Stadium, mm-hmm. and if you couldn't catch people's attention, then the show wouldn't work. Right? Oh yeah. We we just lost um, just this past weekend a wonderful actor, Joe seravo I don't know if you know about him. He on the Sopranos, he was uh, Tony Soprano's dad. Yes. Tony yes. Soprano. Yes. He also was in Oslo on Broadway. Right. Um, And he got sick a couple years ago. He was my first Shakespeare teacher at my studio. And his whole mission as a teacher was to debunk the notion that Americans couldn't do Shakespeare well. Uh, He he trained at NYU and was a masterful actor and and a beautiful teacher and a beautiful soul. And unfortunately, he got sick and, and died at the age of 64. But gosh, he was good at teaching Shakespeare and making it feel like, oh, I can do it. I can make it real. He was a master at that. Oftentimes people will say, just let it wash over you.
3: Do you agree with that um, sort of philosophy or that theory? If I just sort of like let my mind relax, that eventually I'll pick up on
0: the big broad strokes of the piece? I don't know. I I like to watch people doing things and interacting and have it feel real. You know, I don't don't watch The Godfather and let it wash over me. You know, I, <laughs> I, I don't watch Silkwood, which is a great movie with Meryl Streep and Cher. I uh, love that movie let, so much. And, and let it wash over me. No, I want to watch real human beings doing real things. And when that's done well, you know, I saw Dustin Hoffman, uh, do Shylock, um, you know, I mean, in Merchant of Venice, like, Lily Ray, I mean, like really good actors make Shakespeare feel real. And that's what it should feel like. The washing over thing doesn't work very well for me. I I like that when I go to the symphony.
3: Yeah. I, you know, I'm glad that you, I'm glad that you're in my court because I just thought to myself, I I really would like to understand from moment to moment to moment what's going on. And, um, and the best actors are going to be able to break down those beats and, and feed them to me, if you will. Um, I'm glad you brought up Lily Rabe. I love her. Yeah. She, how great is she? I mean, she just like, she's like total prodigy, but just an incredible actor. Saw her for the first time in um, uh, still Magnolias like 10, 15 years ago, where there was a production with like Delta Burke and Christine Ebersole. And I didn't know who Lily Rabe was, but about, halfway through the first act of the, the, the first act act break. Cause it's a told in four parts. Everybody out there. If you haven't seen the play, everyone's seen the movie. I leaned over to David and I said, she is stealing this whole thing from all of these dynamite actors. And I was like, who is she? She is, she's incredible. And it's been wonderful to watch her work. Yep. Wow. Okay. I'll stop fangirling over Lily Rabe and we'll move on a little bit here. Um, now you had said that the first couple of days, uh, after the shutdown, uh, which, um, was, I believe March 12th was the first day yeah. where you had no, no theater, um, at all that, it, um, you felt not great. Um, and that is completely understandable, uh, what was your rebound process like? What, what did you have to do to pull yourself out of that place um, yeah. and, and
0: get back into teaching and doing what you love to do? Yeah, thank you for asking that question. Yeah, I remember it so well. <clears throat> March 12th was a Thursday. Uh, March 13th, Friday the 13th, was my last day in-person teaching mm-hmm. at all. Um we were about to go on spring break. We our spring break coincided. It's a week with NYU spring break, where I had retired from there, but I still had a lot of connections because um, it was just I'd stopped teaching there just a few years before. And on that Thursday, I was just I was petrified, as I told you, and I was angry, and um, I didn't know. You know, NYU had said take spring break off um, and take another week off and then we'll come back for a week of online and then we'll be back. Like they imagined the pandemic thing being a three-week event. Um, and so I, I wandered over to NYU in Washington Square that Thursday. I had a little bit of time and was hoping I would see my former boss, who's a wonderful teacher and, and boss named Rosemary Quinn, um, used to work with Joseph Chaikin in the open theater and Jean-Claude Van and and um, the Roy Hart Theater in France, um, and is a great, great administrator and teacher and inspiration. And uh, she was so jolly. There was nobody there. A- NYU was empty, which was weird on a Thursday, um, but they'd sent the kids home early and they'd sent the, they said administrators didn't have to come in, but she was there. We bumped elbows and she basically shared with me that, um, NYU had, uh, basically told every teacher there in every department, we're going online. Either you do it or you're fired. Like there's no choice because NYU had already gotten the tuition. They weren't about to give money back to students. They didn't have it to give back. Um, so make it work. And one of her teachers said, I you know, I guess she was a bit old-fashioned and said, I can't do this. So they didn't come back. But everyone else was on board, reluctantly, uh, with a lot of confusion. And Rosemary, with the biggest smile on her face, said, who better to figure this out than us? Because we're improvisers. So this is a moment to improvise. Now, so that kind of just shifted my sales a bit like oh maybe this is possible and i was supposed to go to mexico that saturday morning i had tickets and thursday night i canceled everything i had an airbnb in mexico i was gonna go with my family and um i was there like i don't know if i'm gonna be able to get back that was the fear of going to mexico not of getting the virus but just like that the walls would shut down and uh, u.s border and customs would say no flights in Right. So I canceled everything. And that Saturday, the 14th, I had uh, recently been nominated to join a wonderful organization that's been instrumental throughout as a guide and touchstone for me throughout this, which is called the National Alliance of Acting Teachers. And it's a countrywide elite group of acting teachers Mostly in universities, NAAT, um, uh, so for people from all over, people from Utah, Wyoming, Texas, California, Oregon, and New York, um, uh, and a few studio teachers, but mostly university teachers. And we had our first Zoom meeting that Saturday, 70 acting teachers on a Zoom call. Jeez where we kind of all put our heads together and like, what are we gonna do? And how are we gonna go forward? And how are we gonna take care of our students? And how are we gonna teach? And one particular colleague um, was very angry, a little bit like me at the time, and very doubtful, and said, there is no way that this can happen okay we can do table work we can do like beginning work on scenes but the full embodied training of an actor with touch and bodies and objects and space no way we can't do it and then this other woman from another school these are top acting program teachers said but no actually it's quite possible And I dated my husband in Cameroon, Africa, on Skype for two years. And when I would say, sweetheart, good night, and I want to embrace you, and I reached my hand towards his face on my computer screen, and he reached his hand towards me, I felt something in my body. It wasn't just this digital flat experience. Um... And, they, and he was going, no, no, no. And she was going, yes, yes, yes. And it got so heated. And meanwhile, 68 of us are just like watching. And I started to get nervous because this was supposed to be a collegial support group. And instead, it was turning into a battlefield. And then kind of all at once, we all kind of went, oh, that's the work. That's two people having a scene. That's two people working moment to moment with full emotion in their bodies, so connected on Zoom okay, this might be able to work. It was like this 68 people, a hive mind, all happened at the same time. And that gave me some hope. So Rosemary's conversation with me gave me hope. That moment gave me hope. And I spoke to a friend who is a a kind of a business advisor to me, just like a guru who understands a lot about how business works. Because when I started my studio, I had to pivot from being just an acting teacher to like I have to pay rent and I have to do payroll and I have to like there's a whole lot of other you know hire teachers and scheduling and hire staff and there's a lot of other stuff that goes into having an acting studio and by the way it's not like when I started my studio New York said you know what we need right now more than anything another acting school like it was the silliest thing to do right I mean if I looked at the market right but we, but it worked out so this guru friend said to me, You're going to be okay. Your students, because they were writing me at that point, and they were going, I think we should wait. I don't think that this is going to work. Let's just pause for a bit. Are you going to give us a discount? We don't think this is worth it, you know. And many of them were, because they all pay for their education. You know, a few of them might have money and a few of them might have parents supporting them. But most of them are bartenders, baristas, servers, babysitters. Well, there was no restaurants, no bars and no babysitting in New York. And a lot of people were leaving town or their parents were saying, get out of New York. Because New York was a hot spot at that point. New York was way more cases than other places. Right. And so they're saying, come home to Minnesota. Right. Where you're safe. And so they were saying, "What are we?" and they'd given up their apartments. They had no jobs. Um, and so they're kind of saying, this isn't going to work. But my friend, the business friend, said, people are going to be very isolated right now. And so it's going to be very meaningful for them to be in community. And when you have a Zoom class with 20 people in it, it's going to feel like a community, even though everyone's in their own separate space. And the other thing is people are going to want to do something meaningful. And to be this training is meaningful to them. They're not going to want to stop doing meaningful things. It's going to be hard to find meaningful things to do. And so to be in community and to do something meaningful is going to carry them through if you can find a way to teach. Call every one of your students. Don't email them. Now we do all our business through email and then we meet and it's all personal. So that week... That week of spring break, I called every one of my students. We made a hundred calls. I have another acting teacher. He had some students too. And we just listened and made space for them. And there was a lot of doubt, a lot of worry, a lot of suspicion. A few people were like, yeah, we're gung-ho. But majority of people, were there like, I don't think this will work. I don't know if I want to do it. This feels weird. It's not what we, you know, it's not what we signed up for.
1: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: And that first class back, so that would have been 14, 15, 16, the 23rd of March, 2020, that first Monday, we all met. And I had four different groups. And so I had four different groups that had their first class on Monday or Tuesday. And just talked that night. It was like a therapy group. It was like a lot of shattered souls, um, a lot of stories to tell, a lot of trauma. And we didn't do any work until the very end. And then we just did a little bit of work at the end of that first class, and it was working. There was It was meaningful. People were open. There was a resonance to it. And I said to them, as I said at the beginning of our conversation, we'll try it for a week. Because if it's not excellent, I don't want to do it. But if it is, let's do it. Let's see if it works. And if it doesn't work, I'll be the first one to shut it down. And at the end of that week, we kept going. And I only lost one student, and that was before we started. She was a mom with three kids, school-age kids, one of whom had special needs. She couldn't even go to the bathroom by herself. It made no sense for her to train. Yeah. And... We didn't know when it would end. I mean, we were hoping, okay, maybe it'll end and we can have a summer session in person. And then that didn't look likely. Maybe we'll be back in the fall and in person. So everyone who started this past September will be finishing, will have an entire year online. That's very not what we expected, not what we anticipated. Somewhat disappointing and heartbreaking. But we've done really great work. And that was the evolution of going forward and then there was also just the like figuring out how do you do a scene online you know the Meisner work has two people in the same space if we were working together you and I in a scene we'd be pretending that you on 52nd Street and 10th Avenue and me and Bed-Stuy were in one space and if I knocked on the door you'd hear my knock and you'd go I'm going to the door and you'd walk over and open your door and then I'd come into my camera and we pretend that I just came into your space. So there's certain sort of agreed-upon conventions that we have to do to kind of make the the thing work um, because we're pretending that we're in the same space. We're not pretending we're on a Zoom call. We're pretending that we're living this out in space and then the rest of the class, we could have 18 other people in this Zoom call, they'd have turned their cameras off and they're just watching. So we're the only two people where it's happening. And I'm, my camera's off, and I'm watching, and I'm taking notes, and sometimes I'll turn my mic on, and I'll give them some side coaching just to kind of reorient them. And it, it kind of works. It, it, it more than kind of works. And then the movement department, because I have movement training, they had to figure out, because a large part of their work has to do with touch. Well, that's the part that's the least satisfying. Kissing, hugging, dancing, shoving, you know, that doesn't work as well on Zoom. Clearly, you know, <laughs> but they, they figured out how to do that voice work. I mean, we've, we figured out how to do it. And so in some ways it's an advantage. Like if I were in class right now and you're in front of me and I'm teaching you, there'd be 20 people behind me looking at the back of my head. But in class, they're looking at my face and they're, and there are no cheap seats on zoom. There's no balcony on zoom. Every seat is an orchestra seat. And and if I and I have a big computer, I have an IMAC, so if I put you in close up, I can see details on your skin that I might not be able to see in person. So in some and one other thing is that some students, very shy students, you know, sometimes actors can be very shy. I'm sure you know that, right? I, I do. Um, um they felt more comfortable in their own homes. Something about doing their work and having their teddy bear there and, you know, their, their their mug of hot cocoa from downstairs or whatever made them feel a little freer to let us see more of them. It's interesting how it's worked out.
3: Wow. I, <clears throat> I'm in my mind still trying to put the concept together of us being in the same room right. when right. we're not. Right. And there's this in in my mind, I'm thinking, you know what? I can imagine that yeah. I can imagine that that door behind you was a door that I could walk over and right. use if I needed to.
0: That's right, that's right, that's exactly it. So I'd go off camera, you'd be doing your thing, I'd knock on the door, you'd hear the knock because it'd be picked up by the mic either I'm wearing you know earbuds or I'm using this yeti mic, and then you'd you'd look over your shoulder at your door, we'd see your door and your camera. And um, he'd say, who's that? What are you doing? I'd say, it's me, Terry. Oh, I've been waiting for you. Come in. And then I'd come into my door and he'd say, what took you so long? And, you know, and we'd be in this agreed-upon thing. It's so weird.
3: Now, it, with that exercise, did you encourage people to get together, your students to get together and sort of like t- tailor their actual physical rooms to look like one room all no, at one time?
0: No, no, that would that would be cool. Um, no, it's just agreed upon. So, you know, the the decor never matches. Um, the doors never line up. It's just, an, you know, it's like, it's the magic of theater. You know, you have an empty space and you say, welcome to the Forest of Arden. And once we say it's the Forest of Arden, we agree. Wow.
3: You know, I'm surprised that there are, I bet there are actors who were sort of doing that in their minds or saying, you know, okay, I know what this person's office looks like. I'm going to put this over here and that's going to
0: pull me in. Maybe, (laughs) you know, you also get some weird things that uh, you have to, you know, (laughs) I mean like pets, you know, sometimes people live in studio apartments and there's dogs and cats and birds and they're wandering around and like they're distractions Uh, And and lately, everyone's getting, um, because I'm really strict about attendance, you know, um, and and my students have been great. You know, um, this isn't like flaky because the business isn't flaky. So we don't want to encourage those habits. But like I've had some students recently, I'm letting them miss class or miss part of class to go get vaccinated, obviously, because that's what's happening. So I I have a woman studying in Puerto Rico. Um, She does her exercise. I mean, I have people in Japan. Canada. This has opened up borders, right? Like, you don't have to come to New York and rent an apartment to study acting at my studio right now. So I've had people taking class at two in the morning from Israel, from Japan, Vancouver. So this woman's in Puerto Rico. She's wonderful, wonderful actress named Anna Isabel, who's in the new Spielberg West Side Story, um, uh, is one of the sharks. She's great. She's so good. Um, and she does her exercise, then she says she has to go get vaccinated. She's on the car. And on, she, her iPhone is on her dashboard. She's driving in Puerto Rico. I mean, I'm just like, what would Meisner think about, you know, a Puerto Rican actress taking acting class from Puerto Rico in her car on her way to get vaccinated? I mean, this is a strange world we're living in right now. But she didn't want to miss any class, right? So she wanted to hear everything. That is a very, very strong
3: testament to your leadership qualities wow. that you can you can pull people in, in from all over the world and keep them and have them be that passionate and that committed. Um, and also, can, you know, good on you and your other teacher for calling all of those students. I mean, I'm sure that meant so much to them. Yeah. And even if it was just like to a shoulder to cry on on the phone just to to get it all out even or if it was you know you were telling them look i'm still here for you your world is not completely falling apart this is yeah. you're still here you know i i mean i just when you said that i thought that was really super cool that you did that
0: yeah it was very very good advice and it was one of the best and most catalytic things we did yeah no doubt um, where do you feel theater stands now, as of today, in the process of reemergence? Poised, impatient, ready to go, somewhat stymied by equity, I would say. Um, I mean, I think equity is trying to be very careful, but I think it might be being a little too careful compared to SAG AFTRA, um, who are up and running. Um, I, pay, I think, do you listen to Ken Davenport? Uh, uh, I don't listen to him regularly, but I've been to uh, many of his uh, yeah. seminars, his classes. Yeah. you know, he's a sassy producer who does attention-getting things and, and likes to opine, And uh, but I like him. And, you know, he predicts Broadway will be back uh, in November. I, I think it'll be back in September, October. I mean, we talked about Merry Wives of Windsor. I think there's going to be a lot of outdoor performance. Um. I think you know it was kind of interesting. A couple months back, they did a production of Godspell um, with like a plastic curtain in Massachusetts, and like Matt, you know, like uh, and Nathan Lane just last week, and, and Savion Glover did a performance in a Broadway theater for invited members of the industry. Obviously, socially distanced. Um, I think facilities are very tricky, especially Broadway houses are not ready for you know they don't have touchless bathrooms and. The seats are, you know, I think a, a more modern place like St. Anne's Warehouse might be able to come back quicker and also just has less of uh, an economic burden than Broadway with, you know, I mean, I, if you're going to do it socially distanced, what, what a ticket's going to be, $600 each. I don't think that makes sense. Yeah. So I'm imagining, though, that like actors can't wait to get back to work as far as I can tell. Like it's just what we love to do, especially dancers you know, especially if you're in a musical, like, what are you doing? You know, um, you might be taking class. I mean, a friend of mine who's a Broadway dancer had to develop another business during the pandemic. And she makes like these um, homemade books, like she she customizes books and like bookbinding and stuff like that to make like journals and stuff like that. But she can't wait to get back onto a stage and get into projects writers are certainly never stopped working that 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 was continuous that the writers rooms in hollywood and playwrights there are a lot of amazing stories that i think are going to come out of this i keep thinking about the roaring 20s which came right after the spanish flu and i think after things are safe there's going to be a renaissance of art and activity but i do think that my sense is that Broadway will be back in the fall uh, theater will be back in the fall probably with known hits first so wicked and and uh, Lion King and and Hamilton but just open somewhere Japan maybe um, Taiwan um, and then other things will start to happen after that I pray you know but uh, you know it's just you, you can't risk. we're not at herd immunity yet right you know so even if you're vaccinated what if and even if they require i think they'll have a passport i imagine that they'll require audience members to be vaccinated and stagehands and ticket takers and all the actors but you know kids aren't vaccinated yet right and so we don't know what happens with them and and let's say your child is around or you're around a child, and then even if you're vaccinated, it's not proven that you can't carry it. And then right. you go see someone who can't take the vaccine or something, and then your grandmother dies, and then what happens? So yeah. we don't want that. So I think it's wise that it's coming back slowly, but I think everyone's chomping at the bit. I know I am. And I'm going to cry. When I'm in a theater that first time, and I bet you are too, Sean, and the lights go down and we do that thing that we've been doing for all our lives. And we're in a communal space, sharing stories with live actors on stage. That's going to be the best day. Hmm. I can't wait. Neither can I. And I would say probably
3: 18 guests that I've interviewed for this show, this particular series of my show have said the same thing. There's going to, everybody's going to be on their feet Crying, just you know, we're gonna be we're gonna be standing up as the curtain is rising.
0: <laughs> I'm getting upset now. I mean, I just can't wait. It's it's so meaningful.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like I had said before, and and one of the first groups I interviewed, uh, a young uh, female administrator, had said that it's going to be mythic. It's almost mythic when that's going to happen, and that that overwhelms me because it's like I never did we ever even think? Ever, ever, ever. And now we're just trudging through to get to it, but we're, we're making good things happen um, ourselves and and for other people. And people are stepping up like you and, and, and supporting everyone and and getting them to that place. And that's cool. That's really, really cool. That's, I'm very, very impressed with, with everything that that you're doing in this
0: circumstance, oh, absolutely. And um, Film and TV are back with some special rules, but you know, um, I, I, you know, I, uh, another thing I do is I coach a lot of actors and, and kind of more prominent actors, and they were out of work for six nine months, like that, just dried up, and and one guy, Chris Messina, who's a wonderful actor, um, came and took my class online just to have something to do. And stay kind of alive, and and since uh, I don't know September, um, Vancouver. I mean, everything's opened up. They're shooting in New York. They're shooting in London. They're shooting in Australia, um, and so I'm happy to say no because all of a sudden everybody's working. You know, everybody's working, and just before this podcast, I got a call from a very big actor who needs to do. You know, and they're like, I hope I have time and everybody's working and that's also exciting Yeah, I mean, with w- weird rules. You know, as I was talking to this guy who's down in Atlantis I and mean, someone says, wait, where's your mask, man? And like, you know, and la- I'm working with um, Natasha Leon on season two of Russian dolls. I love her. So, so she's, she's astounding. And, oh my, um, you're not kidding. She is great. Um, but her set got closed last week. Cause you know, someone, you know, they test every day and it's someone positive. got tested and and so they had they traced it they do contact tracing and it went back to hair and makeup so for 4 days her set's closed and that's happened a lot mm. yeah.
3: yeah it's it's it changes every single day and the line yeah. continues to move you know for it moves forward moves backwards it's it, and and i don't have children but i can only imagine how much more difficult it must be to manage having children who are going to school one day and not the next day. And, Oh, if, you know, so many kids test positive, then we shut the school down. And
0: the kids, I have a seven year old and the kids love being at home because they can like play on their devices and right. They don't want to go when they're at school, they enjoy it. But, but my son's in New York city public schools and it was one day, then two days it was three days. Now, next week, it starts to be four days. Ah. And and he's mad because he likes to play, you know, Minecraft and stuff like that uh, with his friends and, you know, lie on the floor when they're having Zoom school and play <laughs> with our dog. So, um, But it, the education is not as good. Uh, yeah, it's um, it, we're
3: a little more strict here. My sister is a teacher in Alabama. She says they've been back since... I think August of last year and they're, they're teaching, you know, live in school with with, you know, she has two kids that go to to school as well and they're back in class, but, um, it's, it's very strange how it's just so different everywhere. And it's, it's just confusing. And we read so many differing headlines every day. It's, um, I quoted this guy, maybe I'll meet him someday, but there's an actor named Telly Ayung who's, um, a Broadway actor. Hmm. And he said, this is like performing a mental hit on everybody. And I thought, Whoa, that's absolutely true. I mean, that's what it feels like. And we're all just trying to, you know, so we're all
0: reeling and trying to get our bearing back. Um, but look what it's done for self tapes and auditions, right? Like it's really putting the power back in actors hands. Like, you know, there was self taping before, but I don't think too many actors are going to be going to casting directors' offices anymore. You know, you'll either have a Zoom audition um, or you'll do a self tape, and it, even for theater, right? Oh, absolutely! You know? No, you know?
3: I, I, I totally. I mean, so many people are so used to to filming their auditions now. It's it's it, it'll probably be maybe I don't know a little less expensive than to cast a show, um, which I don't know. There'll be good things and there'll be challenges about how we, how we emerge from this. I feel, um, it's just going to have to be us getting back there before we realize what worked then, what worked then will be working in the present. So, um, but you know, that's just life in life in the time of COVID-19 ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. 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 Um, I have one more question for you besides giving out your social, you giving your social media information. But before I ask, I just have to say the actress that um, is, was in a company in uh, London. It's named Rosalie Craig. Mm-hmm. Just, I just, whenever I forget a name and I just, I it usually, comes to me within the show and I write it that she was phenomenal. And I want to give her the credit where credit is due. The whole entire cast is brilliant, but um Okay. How have you surprised yourself during all of this? What's something that's come to you where you're like, where did that come from out of me?
0: Wow. You've, you've, you've got, you've, you've struck me dumb. Um, I think I've surprised myself with how much I need to spend time with my family I was used to um, going to the studio. I mean, when I first opened my studio, I taught five nights a week and six days a week because that's what you do when you open a business. And so I wasn't going to meet... My, I was afraid my son wouldn't know me. You know, he, he was two years old and, and uh, he wasn't... I mean, that's, that's hyperbolic, but, like, I needed to cut down on that. But still... And so I've been shaving my schedule down more and more so that I can um, have time with my family because that's super important. And now I see them every day. Um, not all the time. My wife's a therapist, and so she's downstairs Zooming, and I'm upstairs Zooming. And But we have all our meals together, and we've spent all this time together, and I don't want that to stop. I think that's just how I took for granted that quality time was important. that's what I told myself but actually quantity isn't bad either. and um, like last night I was teaching a class my son comes in and sits on a stool behind me and is watching the work and and you know every day he comes home from school at 2:30 and I teach a class four days a week at that time he'll come right into this room and give me a hug during class and the class most of the time it happens that they're on screen and I'm watching them and they can see me. And that's kind of cool for me, but also for them to see the human being who's teaching them. Right. Um, so I think that's the thing that comes to mind most is just what to value. And I also started guitar lessons during the pandemic, like just quality of life stuff. You know, I, I always played guitar. Uh, I love guitar, but I, I started taking classical guitar. I was a blues guitarist in finger style jazz. And I found this amazing teacher and, um, I'm learning all this Renaissance music and we have, we have zoom lessons every Sunday and that's become important to me. And we got a pandemic dog, a rescue dog. And so all this stuff around home and life really got concentrated and valued. I think that's, that's kind of been special, very special.
3: That's marvelous. And that's, I've heard that many times. During this season, including the interview that I had with Ray that you listened to, mm, yes, that you referenced yes. earlier, that he he connected so much more with his daughter, and yes. it was nice to sort of get back to that family basic, and um, uh, I think that's really neat. I do. And, you know, and we're, we're fortunate that we have people in our houses that we can do that with. I mean, I, I don't know how yeah. people who are not... We don't have another person there. I don't mean to bum everybody out. Sorry, everyone, but
0: it's, it's could be tragic. You could get so lonely because you miss community and connection and, and, or you, you walk down the street and you don't trust that stranger in the mask or not wearing the mask. And you know, there's so much fear and distrust and isolation. So, yeah. And it's going to
3: take us a while to get back to trusting and, and not feeling awkward when we don't have a mask on and it's, it's, I agree with you on that. Um, okay, please give our audience your social media information and your website information so they can follow and keep up with all the wonderful things going on with Terry Knickerbocker Studio and
0: you. Well, thank you. Well, we have a website. Uh, you got it. It's a lot of letters, but it's TerryKnickerbockerStudio dot com. Knickerbocker with a K, K N I C K E R B O C K E R. Terry with a Y. Um, on Instagram, we're Terry Knickerbocker Studio. On Twitter, we're T Knickerbocker, um, and we're on Facebook too. No TikTok. Um, we have a little. We have a bunch of videos on YouTube, but we don't really stay active there. So that's all the places you can find us.
3: Very cool. And yeah. your website is great. It really is. Yeah. It
0: that's is. That's my fourth website in five years. You know, <laughs> we just have to keep.
3: That's I know insane. I need to take a, a page from you and get on my website and update yes. it. Yes. I, 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 yes. I, okay, I'm making excuses here, but I also have websites and and uh, Facebook pages and stuff for all of my different plays and musicals and stuff. So I get a little behind. That's insane. <laughs> it, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, Terry, this has been, so great. I mean, I loved interviewing you. I feel oh. like I should be paying you for a class that I'm taking from you on the basics of acting, acting styles and, and, and Meisner. And just you, you have done such a great job uh, explaining to us all uh, hmm. in just a very real uh, way uh, how, students are struggling and teachers are struggling, but that they're, they're finding themselves again and that they're, they're getting their feet under, under them again. And, and the, that there will be an after. And it's, it's to your credit. Again, I know I've said this a couple times. It's to your credit as a leader. Uh, that, I mean, it, be an acting teacher. Absolutely. Great. Cool, cool, cool. But, leadership qualities are rare Mm -hmm. and, and you have them. And I think that that's really what's driving your tremendous success that you're having right now and that you'll continue to have. And
0: you've been delightful. Thank you. You know, I, I, that's so kind. And you, you touched me with, with those kind words. And, and, you know, I, I stand on the shoulders of everyone in my life, starting with my parents and all the teachers I had, especially Bill Esper, um, and my family and, and my students, my staff. I mean, it really takes a village. And uh, I, I think the best thing that I can keep doing is to stay curious and and um, not think I have all the answers and, and uh, cultivate as much humility as I can. I mean, take credit when credit is due, not say no, no, no. But, I mean, I, I have achieved a lot, and I'm really proud of it. But I'm also so eager to keep learning. And, you know, I go to therapy every week. And I'm still trying to unpeel the onion and figure stuff out. And I learn a lot from my son, a lot, a lot, a lot, and a lot from my students. And uh, gratitude is uh, really helpful. I I, I want to say one more thing about acting training because a lot of people don't want to train, right? The biggest uh, hurdle we face with a potential student is two years? Can't I do it in like a weekend? like there's this really bizarre anxiety that they're going to miss pilot season and they don't have time because they're going to get older which is so weird because that's not how it used to be and I'm an old fogey and I know all that but like you can't learn the violin in a weekend you can't learn ballet in a weekend but people have the idea that oh I know how to act I just need a few tips just give me some like how to do self-tape tips or I don't need training I'll just get a coach and you can't learn how to do it from a coach. And so it's actually, the people who want to do this are less and less, right? We're, we're sort of doing something that's a dying art, not theater. Theater and, and, and acting will always be there, but training is fading, so sad, um, but so necessary to be good. If you want to do this, you have to want to be good at it. And the only way to get really good at it for most, most people is to train and train seriously. And so if you love acting, if there's someone listening to this, who'd love to be an actor, training is an investment in your talent mm-hmm. and the time goes by quickly. And then it's with you the rest of your life. And I so believe that in my bones.
3: Yeah. And, and it's ongoing. Uh, it's funny. I, uh, David was talking to his mother, who is a very, very proud mom when he wins awards and stuff for his acting. Um, but, he said, "I'm. I can't come back and see you this particular weekend because because we're from California. Uh, because I have acting class or I have an acting seminar that weekend." She's like, "Why are you taking acting lessons? You already know how to act." <laughs> She's just, you know, and 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 I agree. I mean, that just you have to continuously. Uh, learn always there's always new techniques there's always new styles there's always shaking off the cobwebs and and and, yeah. Yeah. and 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 we're so fortunate that we have teachers like you who understand that and who do say hey you know what give yourself some time to learn and yeah. you'll be and, and
0: it, it will behoove you yeah so and you got to be brave it's it's you can't you have to really peel your skin off right and you know <laughs>
3: Yeah, yeah. I, I I don't know how actors do it. Um, I'm not a great actor, but um, we're we're very very lucky that we have teachers like you who are teaching everybody um, uh, how to be better actors all the time, and doing so
0: with heart and and well, grace. And um, so, thank you for this conversation and for doing what you do. And for being such a, a lover of theater, and and, uh, and you're doing God's work, really. And I looked at the guests you've had, and they're, a lot of them are very obscure. Like, not everyone would know who they are, and you're really making space for people to have voices. And I'm grateful to be among them and, and to be with you, so thanks. Harry Knickerbocker, now you're going to make me cry.
3: It's true. <laughs> <laughs> You've been uh, such an amazing guest and I just can't tell you how much I appreciate you being on the show. Um, you're, as I had said earlier, I, I knew this would happen and it did. Your distinct voice as an acting teacher has broadened the perspective of the Act Two Places series. And I wish you many, many broken legs in your career. Um it, and teaching all of these wonderful actors. I I hope they, I hope they know how lucky they are. Um, So just keep doing what you're doing as we navigate our way towards the best future for theater. Thank you so much, Terry. You're welcome back at you. Well, folks, the 11 o'clock number has been sung and the bows have been taken. So it's time to lower the curtain. Once again, a big thanks to famed acting teacher Terry Knickerbocker of Terry Knickerbocker Studio. Such an awesome guest, and I learned so, so much. You can find more episodes of your program as your ticket on the Broadway Podcast Network, who has honored me with a place on their incredible theater podcast platform. Broadway Podcast Network is all about creating an engaging, immersive, user-friendly experience where theater stories of all kinds can be easily found, shared, and enjoyed. Please visit them on my landing page at BPN.fm slash YPIYT. That's BPN.fm slash YPIYT. Broadway Podcast Network also has an app which you can and should download. Your program is your ticket is also on Facebook at Facebook.com, your program is your ticket. I'm on Twitter at, at program ticket, Instagram at your program is your ticket, YouTube, your program is your ticket, iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Podcast Addict, Podbean, Pocket Casts, Deezer, TuneIn, Listen Notes, and the UK-based theater platform Theaspi. FYI, I appreciate all good ratings, reviews, and subscriptions. Folks, take a little time to visit theater websites and see what they have to offer as we transition through and out of this pandemic. Watch their content, give them all great ratings and reviews, and most importantly, donate, donate, donate—the fastest way you can help. As always, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time, and remember.
2: 18 plus.